once again, welcome to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I'm your host, Eddie. I'm joined again by my co-host, Todd. We're switching it up today and we're going to be super excited. But before we get to that, a couple of programming reminders. We talked around it on the bonus episode, which was a great episode. Check it out. But for the last few weeks, we've recorded episode and released one every week. And so this is the last of those every week episodes that we'll have for a little bit. We will relax down to what our original release schedule is supposed to be, which is every two weeks. You can expect us to play catch up releasing episodes weekly around the time of major conferences. So three to four times a year, ATS, SCCM, critical care reviews, and maybe chest. So conferences that traditionally have reached have reached, no, not have reached, have released uh, some late-breaking critical care articles, studies, would include Society of Critical Care Medicine, ATS, CHEST, rarely, but a little bit. Those are the US-based ones. And then CCR, ISICEM in Brussels, ESICM, which is the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, that has a meeting in October and often has a session that is late-breaking studies, articles that are usually high-impact, published in high-impact journals. When are you going to pay for me to go to Milan, Todd? Probably when you get into the fashion industry. Am I supposed to get that reference? That's not just not something that I would expect you to know, judging by the way you dress on a day-to-day basis. Uh, just so you know, Eddie, I googled what is Milan known for, and it says it's the fashion capital of the world. And while I know you think I don't know that, there's actually a medical reason that I know this. With the origin of COVID, there actually were some thoughts that the reason that Milan had so bad of COVID was is because they actually illegally smuggle in workers from China to work in the fashion industry during these fashion weeks. And there were at least some early hypotheses that some of those workers from China had actually brought the original version of COVID to Milan early on. And that's the reason that Milan was hit early with such severe and bad and widespread COVID. For us erudites on the rest of the podcast. So we're going to be talking about the inception trial which studied eCPR and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But we have a special guest joining us today, ECMO queen in our hearts, ECMO expert to everyone else, friend of the pod, Whitney Gannon. Hi, Eddie. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I said friend of the pod, and I'll probably say friend of the pod more often, but Whitney's a special friend because Whitney's husband, Mike, is the artiste behind the awesome intro music that we have on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. But before we begin, we want our listeners to get to know Whitney a little bit. So Whitney, what made you want to do this podcast? Oh, wait, I can answer that. That's easy because neither Todd nor I are ECMO experts, and I asked you and you were kind enough to pity us. To the listeners, I'm just kidding, but only kind of. So the real first question, Whitney, is can you please tell me something about yourself that people may not know? Sure. Actually, I can't believe I'm about to say this out loud, but I am a beekeeper and it's been a long time dream for about three years. And, it, you know, I'm actually very terrible at it, but I'm learning every year thanks to my beekeeping mentor named Buzz. <laughs> Buzz. <laughs> yes. Talk about names that set you up for your career in life. What if my name was Pressers, Todd? <laughs> a better name for you would probably be dyssynchrony. <laughs> Uh, so Buzz, Whitney? Yes. So, so yeah, I'm honing my beekeeping skills on the side. <laughs> Great. Oh, so we'll flip the script really quickly and we'll just talk about ECMO. What got you interested in ECMO in general in the first place? Yeah. So I was first introduced to ECMO, I guess now maybe 12 years ago when I was working at Columbia University Medical Center in New York, where ECMO was used to support patients with a number of different disease processes, including ARDS, asthma, COPD, pre and post lung transplant, pulmonary hypertension, and it was really fascinating to me to see this evolving technology both truly save people and hurt people before my eyes. And 
you know, I found myself really thinking about, you know, what we can do better in terms of saving more and hurting less from patient selection all the way through to after decannulation. It's interesting that you say both save people and hurt people. Because Whitney, you run two trials in ECMO-related care, one about weaning from ECMO and other about the management of anticoagulation on ECMO. And to me, these are super exciting because it moves beyond the question of who, as in like who is going to benefit from ECMO, which don't get me wrong, still has a ton of unanswered questions in it. But I love how your work addresses the how and the de-escalation. This is a little bit of a loaded question, but can you tell me a little bit more about these trials, how you got interested or what literature currently exists? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll maybe take one at a time. I think these are two spaces that I find and our research team finds kind of interesting with limited data, but also we felt were somewhat feasible for us to tackle. So I'll start with liberation from ECMO. There really aren't a lot of data around this. I think, you know, historically our approach to weaning patients from ECMO is weaning relies on clinicians to identify signs of lung recovery, followed by slow reductions and an iterative approach to turning down, you know, settings that support the patient, sweep gas flow, fraction of delivered oxygen, oxygen, blood flow rate, and so forth. Fortunately, we use the clinician's view of how well the lungs have healed because we know from all the spontaneous breathing trial studies uh, how well that we do that as clinicians, how well we evaluate if the lungs have healed or not. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. So we're borrowing from other realms of critical care where we liberate from different devices and therapies, and we know that using these once-daily standardized protocols improves patient outcomes. And so we're essentially applying those ideas to to ECMO and liberation from ECMO. And we don't know whether that's going to be better for patients or not. And so we're trying to study that. Interestingly, about, mm, let's see, three years ago or so, we published, our research team published a single arm feasibility study looking at the protocol that we created in terms of delivery and specification and these kinds of things. And around the same time, just even weeks, there were two other groups who published conceptually very similar papers, Ricardo Paradis and Eddie Fan from Toronto and Elias Pratt and Craig Grackley from Duke. And this was very exciting to us because these other powerhouse ECMO centers were examining questions that we felt were important and kind of thinking similar to us. And so we applied for a grant, received a grant from SCCM, joined a few forces, and we're performing this multi-center pilot trial in liberation from ECMO. And I think, you know, when you're talking about anticoagulation in ECMO, I think there are a lot more data around anticoagulation in ECMO. There's really this kind of, I would say, moderate body of observational, generally retrospective Perspective work. I think the real challenge is assimilating all those data and interpreting them because of the heterogeneity that just exists across all of it. Four years ago, when we integrated ECMO into the medical ICU and started really examining these patients in our medical ECMO program, we really noted a lot of bleeding occurring in patients really who had no reason to bleed. And at the same time, there were more and more data emerging from larger studies demonstrating that bleeding was very frequent. And so we looked at our internal data over a three or four year time period and found that both bleeding and clotting were frequent, but bleeding was actually more frequent than clotting. And had a higher association with mortality. And then like six months later, Jose Nunez put out this registry study from the ELSO registry of over 7,500 patients asking a very similar question, looking at the relative frequencies of bleeding and clotting and the associations with death and found that both were very common and bleeding and clotting had an association with death, but bleeding was had a significantly higher risk of death. And at the same time, actually, there were a limited data that were published showing that 
anticoagulating patients in the VV ECMO population with DVT prophylaxis only was feasible and didn't increase incidence of thrombosis. And so taking all of these data together, we were saying, we asked ourselves, well, with, you know, advancing technology and all these data, like, is it possible that we can anticoagulate patients in this population, this VV ECMO population, using DVT prophylaxis only or not essentially empirically anticoagulating patients without any other indication for anticoagulation for the circuit only? And so we have a couple of their centers interested in that as well. And so we're performing this multi-center pilot randomized trial comparing patients in two groups, a low-intensity strategy or a DVT prophylaxis only, and a kind of a usual care moderate level of intensity strategy. I think we've talked about this a little bit before, Eddie, but the best questions in research often come straight from clinical practice. And this is one of those in that when ECMO first started to being applied to patients, one of the biggest fears, and I think it probably evolved from do no harm, was what if the circuit clots off? And then the patient's going to acutely die because the circuit's going to clot off. And the assumption was, oh, well, we should prevent that by anticoagulating the patient and making the blood thinner so it doesn't clot in the circuit. And then once you started doing some ECMO, you sort of get forced into these situations where you shouldn't or can't anticoagulate somebody, but they're kind of still on ECMO. So they've had a bleed, you know, a GI bleed, for example, while they were on ECMO on their anticoagulation. And so you hold the anticoagulation and you always kind of think, I'm going to hold it for a day or two and the patient will probably be fine. And it turns out that day or two is four or five or a week. And when you look back on it, you go, wow, that patient really went a pretty long time without any anticoagulation or any systemic anticoagulation and did reasonably well. Or we've had a few of these in our ECMO experience. You have a young person who is going to die if they don't get put on ECMO but their underlying lung disease is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. And you say, okay, well, I think we can put that patient on ECMO, but we certainly don't want to anticoagulate that patient. And so you run the whole ECMO run, the whole time they're on ECMO, you do it without any anticoagulation and the patient does okay and they survive. And I think as technology has sort of advanced, we've seen fewer and fewer episodes of the circuit just clotting off or the oxygenator just clotting off. And that I think has opened the door for us to say, maybe we can provide this technology and treatment to patients without fully anticoagulating them and not have the devastating problems with clotting that we thought we would have if we didn't anticoagulate them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For me, there's a lot of times where I'm reviewing critical care literature or thinking about these things, and it's few and far between where the answer to my problem is to do more. I feel like a lot of the time the answer in critical care is to do less. But Whitney, you had addressed it a little bit about some of the kind of difficulties and other things that you've already had to come across with these trials. What kind of hurdles do you expect to encounter, maybe not just for these trials, but in the future of ECMO research? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the biggest hurdles in answering these questions parallel those in ECMO research in general, which includes the heterogeneity of ECMO in general. General, the way we manage patients, select patients, also the low frequency of ECMO compared to other therapies and devices studied in critical care, and the lack of equipoise among the high-volume expert centers that usually participate in these trials. And I think these challenges tend to make funding very challenging, which then in turn makes doing these projects on a large scale very challenging as well. I think getting a little more granular in terms of these studies is that the this creep of practice that may occur across centers before 
before the definitive trial is done. And this would essentially make a usual care arm uh, non-existent. And then it would be very challenging to do the trial, to do the larger trial. And so we'll have to see how that plays out. It's always been really shocking to me how in the paucity of evidence where people cannot have equipoise sometimes. Okay, Whitney, last question, at least for now on ECMO in general. That is not from a research standpoint, but from a clinical standpoint. Give us your wise sage advice and tell us where you think we will be clinically with ECMO in, say, five or 10 years from now. What will we be doing? What patients will we be treating? And what's it going to, how's it going to look as part of our practice in a medical intensive care unit? Well, my hope and the way I see this evolving is that ECMO, as we take care of it in the medical ICU, will continue to integrate into sort of our usual critical care practices and will be less kind of siloed from that kind of care. And I think we are certainly evolving into that already. And I think we will see more of that over the next five to 10 years. It's hard to separate research from that because I do think over the next five to 10 years, we will be able to lay more groundwork toward more definitive studies. And we will have evolving critical care networks and refined ECMO registries in which data can be creatively leveraged to answer some questions. And I think a I think that 10 years down the line, maybe 15, we can use some of these results to generate clinical practice guidelines, best practices, and those will be integrated into the ICUs as well. And I think a lot of the concepts that we, that are already working for us in critical care with the, you know, in terms of the ventilator and sedation and all these other things will be applied in, in a little bit more of a standardized way. And I think in general, we'll minimize the amount of variation in practice across centers and be able to provide more consistent care across the whole spectrum of ECMO. Yeah, clearly standardization and trying to have some best practices and some routine way of providing this service to centers you know, not just to our center, but multiple centers is clearly something that's dramatically needed. Uh, I know you and I and some other people here have talked about this, but, you know, I'm very, very intrigued to see if five or 10 years down the road, ECMO is our primary respiratory replacement therapy as opposed to the ventilator. And will we run into situations where we just cannulate somebody and provide ECMO support and maybe never ventilate them? Or, and I think this may be more likely, we ventilate them to kind of in the heat of the moment, get them to a point where they're stable enough that we can cannulate them, cannulate them. And then, and we've talked a lot about this, but then we hopefully will have data by that point where we figured out which of these things is worse to be on ECMO support for a period of time or to be on vent support for a period of time. And whichever of those appears to be worse, we work on getting the patient off of that one first and supporting them with the other. So I think there's lots of promise in this area. And I think with the emerging ECMO technology and a lot of the stuff that we've done in five or 10 years, we could have a a widely different paradigm for how we treat our patients with acute respiratory failure. I feel like that's a little bit outside the five to 10 year plan. I think the next five to 10 years are going to be from brilliant people like Whitney doing the explaining to us how we do ECMO before we start talking about replacement of the mechanical ventilator. But before we jump into inception, jump into inception, maybe I feel like a little bit like Leonardo DiCaprio. We've been talking a little bit about jargon. Don't roll your eyes at me. And we had a very timely tweet by Nita Kadir from UCLA who posted on Twitter about her least favorite jargon, which had some good interactions. She offered bucking the vent, which is a colloquialism for ventilator dyssynchrony as her example. Another one from her post that caught a lot of traction was pulmonary toilet, which refers to techniques for to augment airway clearance. Todd, Whitney, any phrases or jargon that we use in the ICU that you wish we just 
wouldn't. I will say I've I've never been a really big fan of the peripheral smear. <laughs> I always find myself feeling like very awkward when I talk about <laughs> ordering one of those. Uh, I would say maybe I don't I didn't hate this, but ran into a situation where it became really awkward was the term nephron bomb. And for those of you who don't use this term, it's essentially full nephron blockade. Then you essentially give the patient multiple different diuretics that act at different places uh, in the kidney in order to try and increase urine output. Uh, we were talking about it in this young patient, outside this young patient's room one day, one morning on rounds, and his mom was in the room. And when I walked into the room, she said to me, I had a reasonable relationship with her, and she said, Dr. Rice, w- what are we bombing? <laughs> and it really, really, really was awkward because, you know, we had said in the hallway we were, he probably needed to try a nephron bomb before we called nephrology for dialysis. But the, the mom had heard that. And so now if you're on rounds with me, you're no longer allowed to say nephron bomb to say total nephron blockade. Maybe you could just say nephron cocktail, like hyperkalemia cocktail, and then the patient will think they're getting a cocktail and it's much better than bomb. I mean, depending on how young that patient is, maybe the cocktail is not the right answer. Some of the other ones from the comments on Nita's points are liberate from mechanical ventilation. I love the explanation. France got liberated, but patients get extubated. And then there was soft blood pressure, which is, you know, opposed to hard blood pressures. There are made-up words like syncopies and troponemia, transaminitis, septoid, Todd is offering from the peanut gallery over there. There's mechanical sounding breath sounds, which isn't really a thing. And then there's the personification of lab values like creatinine bump or troponin leak. I think for me, I'm a little bit more utilitarian in my approach here. The purpose of language to me is effective communication. And for most people listening, I bet that you knew exactly what I was talking about when I said any of those terms. So now where I have a problem is when the terms become a shortcut or they're a lazy way of describing a topic which has very specific categories. So lung sounding junky is one of them. There's a lot of ways that lungs can sound an important part of your communication to the physical exam. To me is that description, especially when lung sounds can change based off your intervention like bronchodilators or or suctioning. So like syncopies, that's black and white. I know what you mean. That's fine. Soft blood pressure, okay in context. Sometimes, if you're just trying to justify an ICU admission for a patient with hypotension without shock, saying the blood pressure was soft but didn't meet criteria of shock is fine. I know what you're mean. Saying blood pressure was soft when you're presenting the vitals to me or something that you intervened on, that I need a number. Am I just completely out of left field on that one, Todd? What if I told you that the x-ray had a ditzel on it? Yeah, I would say, I don't know what that means and you need to give me something else. As you get more experience, you'll learn what a ditzel is, uh, but it's certainly not intuitive. Define a ditzel, Todd, with your experience. Uh, it would be a small, usually peripheral abnormality on a chest x-ray. Uh, ditzel, D-I-T. Z-E-L. And what is that? What's my differential diagnosis for a ditzel in the ICU, Todd? I, I, the differential can be quite wide. I don't think we're going to just focus on the differential for this discussion that we are supposed to be talking about inception. But okay, well, with that segue, let's go ahead and talk about inception. And this paper was titled "Early Extracorporeal Extracorporeal Early Extracorporeal CPR for Refractory Out of Hospital Cardiac Arrest." And published by... That's really good, Eddie. You got it on your 50th take. (laughs) Thanks, Todd. The paper was published by Suvarin et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, January 2023. The trial acronym is INCEPTION, which I certainly have no idea how they got there. For example, I can't find an N outside of the first word initiation from which you can get the last letter in INCEPTION, right? I'll hold off on a grade because this was a trial done in the Netherlands and language and whatnot. 
Is inception a word in Dutch? I, I digress. This was a multi-center randomized controlled trial in the Netherlands, which assigned 134 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to receive eCPR or standard ACLS. eCPR may not be a term that many listeners are familiar with. I wouldn't have thought of doing a trial of electronic CPR either. I've also never had a joke fall that flat before. Whitney, can you give me the two-sentence overview on what eCPR is really? Yeah, extracorporeal eCPR is sort of a term that was assigned to patients who have a cardiac arrest and require extracorporeal support, basically venoarterial ECMO emergently to provide perfusion uh, during that time. Good to know because the other day with my kids at home, I was talking about eCPR and they actually thought it was some sort of electronic CPR and you did it through like some e-reader or something. So the e for ECMO, not for electronic. Got it. Thanks, Todd. At least your kids might have gotten my joke. Todd, can you or Whitney, can you give me a bit of the history from a trial perspective? What trials and data already exist in this space? I don't know this space great, but there's a trial from a couple of years ago that was published in JAMA, single center trial uh, called the arrest trial, which was actually quite positive and brought a lot of attention and I think enthusiasm for eCPR as a potential adjunct therapy for patients who have undergone cardiac arrest. Yeah, this this trial enrolled only 30 patients. It was actually stopped early for a 30-something percent benefit. Kind of counter to that, there was another recent trial out of Prague. I think the sample size was 240 or so patients, and that trial was stopped early for futility, actually. They were um, underpowered to meet their primary outcome. The other thing I'll say is that let's go back before those two trials. Why would somebody be interested in doing eCPR in these patients? I don't know this for a fact, but I think the answer here is just that the outcomes in these patients are so poor that people are looking for any technique, any adjunct supportive therapy, anything that might actually improve the outcomes of these patients. And eCPR kind of came on the scene as a, hey, if we can support these patients with blood flow by ECMO, then maybe we have a longer period to try and get them resuscitated or to do an intervention like get them to the cath lab or whatever they might need in order to get them out of their arrest. Yeah, I agree, Todd. I think it makes a lot of sense. The rational holds water. We're taught at least that in ventricular arrhythmias, which this is a trial population, largely stem from a structural problem. And then if that problem just happens to be an MI these pa- and these patients are getting safe enough to undergo a cath, that makes a lot of sense. And then more globally, VA ECMO provides more cerebral blood flow than chest compression. So you decrease your low flow time and have a chance at improving your neurologic outcomes. So in this trial, they enrolled patients from May of 2017 to February 2021 at 10 centers serviced by 12 EMS teams paused in the middle for COVID. Who were these patients? The patients were 18 to 70 years of age with a witness arrest, initial shockable rhythm, so VT or VFib, and were refractory, which was defined as 15 minutes of ACLS. The rest couldn't only just be witnessed, but bystander CPR had to have been initiated, and this time was not included in the 15 minutes of refractory time. Exclusion criteria were those who had pre-existing severe medical comorbidities, such as New York Heart Association, Class 3 or 4 heart failure, Grade 3 or 4 COPD, metastatic cancer, bilateral fem-fem bypass or other contraindications for ECMO, severe neurologic disability defined as cerebral performance score of three or four, or multi-injury trauma. 
As standard for most trial, pregnant patients were excluded or if they were expected to be more than 60 minutes from arrest start to cannulation. They had an interesting separation between their randomization and enrollment, meaning patients were randomized before they were enrolled. Whereas in most trials, if you meet the enrollment criteria, both happen at the same time. This was done because patients were randomized in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, even if the full information on their exclusions were not known. This was to not delay a potential procedure. And then at the hospital, criteria was reviewed and patients could be excluded. Patients could be excluded at the hospital after randomization if they achieved ROSC in the meantime, which makes sense. There's no need for extra support there. So I think from a methodology standpoint, a couple interesting things. It makes sense that they have to randomize these patients in the ambulance as they're going to a center in order to mobilize the ECMO teams and you know, get them cannulated and that sort of stuff. Uh, what I thought was really interesting was is that they got randomized to one of the arms, but they never told the ambulance what arm they were in. And they did that because they didn't want knowledge of what arm the patient was in to affect the care that was occurring in the ambulance. And I think that's pretty pretty ingenious of them. You could imagine that if the ambulance knows that the patient is going to do an eCPR, they might do something different in order to try and get them there faster or keep them alive longer or do something different because, hey, they have this hope of eCPR when they get to the end destination hospital. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's also important to note that they didn't protocolize targeted temperature management, which is a hot topic in this space. Or, you know, as we were discussing before, the ECMO management, because again, a lot about your management of the patient on ECMO is actually unknown. So the not protocolizing the targeted temperature management is interesting. Part of me says, well, with all the data that we have out there, this is okay because there's equipoise and we're not really sure. I will say, and this is going to be a little off script for you, Eddie, and I apologize. I know you get anxious when we go off script. There is a recent trial published that shows that outcomes are better in the CPR when you do therapeutic hypothermia post eCPR while you're doing eCPR than if you don't do therapeutic hypothermia. And it's the one population, and we've talked about it some in our ECMO program, it's the one population where right now there are positive data for targeted temperature management, therapeutic hypothermia, and at least currently no trials that suggest that there's not a benefit to that in that population. So maybe somebody who believes in TTM and believes in eCPR may say, no, 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 all of these patients should have gotten targeted temperature management and should have been protocolized. Having said that, that trial came out after this study was designed. It would have been information that wasn't known when they designed this trial. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I'm trying to learn from you about answering questions I want to answer, not the question posed to me. In the targeted temperature management space, it always interests me that the thought that maybe it's not the targeted temperature management, but maybe it's the aggressive avoidance of fever, which being on ECMO could do for you. Yeah, no, completely agree, right? I joke with people in the ICU, the two quickest ways to get rid of a fever are to put patient on CRRT or to put a patient on ECMO because you essentially circulate their body's blood at room temperature, which turns out is a lower temperature than our actual body temperature. The other thing is, is that with eCPR or with ECMO, you have relatively easy measures in place to more easily manage and target a temperature. So, you know, we use a surface cooling when we try and do targeted temperature management if we're going to do it. And while, you know, it works pretty well, it's a little bit of a experience, you know, understanding how to get it to the system. Whereas with ECMO, you can pretty much set the circuit at a certain temperature and the patient's going to be pretty close to that temperature. So it is a little bit easier to do TTM at a pegged temperature potentially with ECMO than it would be if they weren't on ECMO. 
And I think what you're saying goes back to the kind of heart of the question um, and role of eCPR. It's an incredibly efficient means to provide resuscitation and temperature control management at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So coming back to the trial, the primary outcome in the trial was survival with a favorable neurologic outcome at 30 days. A favorable neurologic outcome is a cerebral performance category score of one or two, which effectively means the patient is at least independent in their ADLs. One thing that I think is important here, you you might be worried about those in the eCPR group not actually getting the ECMO portion of it. Similar to the complaint from the CSER trial where not everyone who went to an ECMO center got ECMO. Uh, and is it that just the ECMO equipped centers are better managing severe ARDS? But in this trial, they actually increased their sample size at the interim analysis from 98 total patients to 134. So they would enroll close to their original intended sample for patients who are randomized and received eCPR. Yeah, I always worry in studies about crossover, but this one bothers me less. And the reason it bothers me less is because the reason, the main reason, I guess there's a couple others that aren't the main ones, but the main reason that a person didn't get eCPR is because they got ROSC. And so eCPR doesn't make sense in that population. If you think about what will that be, a what effect will that have on the results? If anything, it's going to make the eCPR group look better. If eCPR works, the group that didn't get it will have already gotten ROSC and have the potential for a better outcome because they got ROSC before they could even get eCPR. And so technically, could bias it towards eCPR looking better, as opposed to the other contamination, which is, is that the group that was just supposed to get standard CPR, I think three of them in this study, ended up getting eCPR. And that, in theory, could take away ability to detect any beneficial effect from uh, eCPR. Table one, baseline characteristics, pretty even overall, age 55, 90% male, which, you know, I expected more males than females when you're talking about cardiac arrest and potentially cardiac etiologies, but it seems like a lot. They mentioned in their discussion, actually, that 80% of these cardiac arrests in the Netherlands are males. So this is pretty on par for their patient population. They had a mean of eight defibrillations, no comments on pad placement, probably standard. Check out episode one of the pod if you're unsure as to why pad placement may matter. 80% of the patients had an MI as a cause of the rest, but only 17% of patients had acute coronary syndrome and 12% had coronary artery disease. The only difference, which probably doesn't make a difference in the intervention of eCPR, is that 48% of patients in the conventional ACLS group had hyperlipidemia compared to 31% of the eCPR group. They ended up cannulating 46 of the 70 patients in the eCPR group, where six of those not cannulated were due to unsuccessful cannulation. Three people crossed over, as Todd has mentioned, from the standard ACLS group to the eCPR group. I don't want to bury the lead and I know everyone wants to talk about the timing, but any quick thoughts on the non-timing-related baseline variables? I mean, from a study design, trial design standpoint, the six patients that were unable to be cannulated, there was an attempt to cannulate them, but they were unable to be successfully placed onto ACMO. Those patients have, to, and they do this, so they're they're in the right, I think, here, but those patients have to stay in the analysis group because the fact is, is that when the patient comes in from the ambulance and I think I'm going to do eCPR, I haven't excluded that patient because I know I can't cannulate them. And so that's part of trying to provide this treatment is, is that there are going to be some patients who, for whatever reason, you can't actually provide good ECMO support to. And we don't know who those patients are before they get to us and we try and provide ECMO support. I thought it was actually quite impressive that it was only six patients, something like eight, high 80% of patients who they attempted to cannulate 
got cannulated? Because I've been a part of a couple of these and I wasn't the proceduralist, but even in the most well-run cardiac arrest resuscitations, there's a lot of chaos involved and cannulating in that situation is pretty difficult technically. The timing discussion really frames the primary outcome. So I'll jump ahead to that. 20% of patients in the ECPR group and 16% in the standard ACLS group reach the primary outcome of survival with a favorable neurologic outcome at day 30, which gives you a p-value of 0.52. This was the same at six months. More people with ECPR survived to hospital admission, 79% versus 36%, but they had a similar number of survival to hospital discharge, 20% in each group. One thing I want to point out is that 49% versus 22% of patients underwent PCI favoring the ECPR group. But I think the big thing that people want to hear about is timing. So mean time between arrest and arrival to the ED was 37 minutes. That includes eight minutes between the start of the arrest and EMS arrival, which is, you know, pretty good. 20-ish minutes from the start of EMS transport to reach the hospital, which in between had to include the 15 minutes of ACLS in the field per their inclusion criteria. That led to a mean of 70 minutes between the start of arrest and to the arrival of the hospital. So that's an hour just to get to the ED. Now, it's a little bit weird because they switch from means to medians in the same table here, but there was a median of 16 minutes from arrival to the hospital to the start of cannulation, which led to a median of 74 minutes from the start of arrest to the start of ECMO flow. So a mean of 70 minutes to get to the hospital from the start of arrest, but a median of 74 minutes to be on pump from the start of the rest. I really wish they had just kept it the same. What is the big concern with timing here? You know, eight minutes was the average time from going down to when EMS arrived in the scene. That's pretty fast. And in some discussions of this, people have said, you know, a 20% survival to hospital discharge with a good neurologic outcome in the standard CPR group is pretty high. And part of the reason it might be pretty high is because one of the things that determines outcomes in out-of-hospital cardiac arrests is how fast you get definitive treatment. And eight minutes for EMS to get there is pretty quick. And that might be part of the reason that one out of five patients in the, in the standard CPR group actually survive with a good outcome. You know, one of the critiques that I saw from a number of different sources after this came out was, well, this is what happens when you do late eCPR by people that aren't very good at it in a population that we are not sure it works in. I mean, I think those are fair critiques, but that's part of the landscape of doing eCPR right now is we don't know who the right people to do it in. Maybe we can't get to these patients fast enough because our EMS systems aren't set up to be able to do that. And lastly, if you have to be so highly experienced in doing this that it can only be done at a very few number of centers, then from a pragmatic standpoint, it's probably not going to be a treatment modality that's going to be widely offered to patients because we just can't do it very well. So one of the things I think is really important to consider here is that, you know, even though we have this device that can potentially save people and provide this very efficient perfusion and, you know, there may be a benefit to using this, it's not, you can't really just kind of drop the device down in the ambulance or the ER or the hospital. Really, it comes with a whole infrastructure um, and interdisciplinary team to be able to do this well. And I think that it is true that the benefit of using this device may be insofar as the volume and experience of the center. There are data to support that. But I think for this space, it might be for right now, especially true given the complexities and how how little we know about this space in particular. And I think the other point I wanted to, to say about what one of the points Todd made was, I think one of the important pieces of understanding who this could benefit, trying to identify patients for whom VA ECMO, ECPR, could be a bridge to a definitive therapy or treatment is really important too. And could could distinguish those patients from patients who really wouldn't require this level of 
of support. Yeah. And I think identifying those patients who may have a definitive therapy is the important part. That's why I had brought up that PCI point, just kind of making a comment of well, more people are able to get to PCI. But Whitney, I, I, both of you had mentioned something about the population. I want to get back to that. But Whitney, you had mentioned that perhaps ECPR is not ready for mainstream adoption right now. Do you think that there's going to be another ECPR trial in the future? I don't know. There may be. I think that we've learned from the past few studies, it's probably and probably one of the reasons why a couple of these studies were stopped early. I think we may need a much larger sample size to be able to show if there is a benefit and whether we can actually reach that sample size. You know, I'm not really sure. And and I think this is another really challenging part of doing ECMO studies. I think it was five or six percent of patients who were screened were actually enrolled. And so just very challenging. So so will there be will there be another one? Maybe. I wouldn't bet against it. Will there be one kind of providing the sample size that we need to show that this actually works? I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So it might just be like a infeasibility thing because I mean, they enrolled over almost five years to get a hundred patients and there was a COVID break in the middle there. But yeah, I mean, if we need a much larger sample size to see a smaller effect size in our trial, that might just be something that's just infeasible for the short term, at least. I'm hopeful that there'll be more trials in this space because my read on the scene is, is that there are people who really believe in CPR and they're going to keep doing it. They're believers enough that, you know, people from the arrest study, I promise you the inception, they're not stopping doing eCPR at their center because, you know, they had a positive trial and they think it works and they're going to keep doing it. If it's a therapy that is being offered, even at some centers, I think we should, we should study it. It's a little bit unfortunate that it's not, and this is, I think, one of the cooler things I've seen in the New England Journal of Medicine in the last five years, but it's unfortunate that it's not something that we can like deliver by drone and have the bystander do, like the AED that was delivered by drone. It's just way, way, way more technologically advanced than that. Todd, AED delivered by drone? Yeah, Eddie, this is a this is a letter to the editor in May of 2022 uh, in the New England Journal. And there's actually a video with it. Uh, and if you're, you're listening to this and you have any interest at all, you should go see this because this video is actually quite cool. And I'm playing it here in the studio for Eddie to watch. But what they did was is they essentially delivered an AED by a drone to bystanders who then apply the AED and actually save this person's life who's had a arrest on their sidewalk or their driveway coming back from their mailbox. Well, that's really interesting. I hadn't seen that before, Todd. I have two more questions, one for you, Todd, one for Whitney. You had mentioned before the authors of the arrest trial, the positive trial in this space, and they had a positive trial, and so they would believe it works in their patient population. But now you have a larger multi-center trial that shows it doesn't work. So what do you think about those centers that have positive trials and demonstrated in their patient population, and then there is a a larger trial that shows no benefit. So one of the limitations always in these trials is that the, you lack a generalizability in a single center study. But if you demonstrate benefit in your single center study, that would stand to reason that you continue to do it in your single center, right? Yeah, kind of an interesting question. So if I'm the one doing the study and I have the positive results, do I really care if they're generalizable to other centers or not? Because they work at my center and I should keep doing it. And I think there's some truth to that or some reasonableness to that thought with the caveat, of course, that your trial results have to be true at your center. And if you've enrolled 30 patients in an eCPR study, you may just have, you know, a false chance. signal yeah, that occurred by chance because you enrolled a small number of patients. And so I think you have to keep that in the back of your mind. I guess this could go to Todd or Whitney because both of you had mentioned the patient population. 
Now, the patient population in this study was out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. But for all three of us, we primarily deal with inpatients. We're in the medical ICU, and we deal with some cardiac arrests that are from our inpatient setting, where if you're talking about timing, and timing is a big issue, if you're talking about ECMO center experience, our center has a lot of experience, why am I not considering this for my floor codes who have initial shockable rhythms? Well, I would say... We should consider it for, you know, our patients who have cardiac arrests in the hospital and leverage the advantages that we have, which is we often know more about the patients. We understand their physiology and their diagnosis, and we may have a better understanding of whether ECMO could be used to sort of bridge to a curable pathway or treatment pathway. But I do think that generally patients who are having an arrest in the hospital are, you know, have a medical problems to begin with, comorbidities. Clearly, however we have been treating them may not be working. And so they would have separate hurdles to overcome. But I think this therapy should be certainly considered for patients who have in-hospital cardiac arrests as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thought and it's interesting to try and extrapolate the concept of eCPR from an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to in-hospital cardiac arrest, there are some positives. The time to response is likely to be shorter. Good bystander CPR is likely to be better because we know that most people in the hospital are trained in CPR and ACLS. And so you have some advantages there. Whitney wasn't quite as crass as I am, but you know the big downside to me is, is that usually patients who have an in-hospital cardiac arrest have had a pretty spectacular failure to our treatment that we're providing for whatever got them in the hospital to begin with. And if they're already failing what we, I hope, are providing as the best treatment option for them, then the question is, is does providing eCPR, which gives them access to something, does that really have a chance to improve their outcome when they hopefully were already getting the best therapy option that they had ahead of them arresting? All right. Thank you, Todd and Whitney. That was a great discussion. And that's all we have for episode four of the ICU Edden podcast. If you have any questions or you want to call Todd out for being wrong or anything you want us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at icuedinpodcast at gmail.com, from which I would like to point out has gotten a couple of emails. Thank you very much. Otherwise, you can hit us up on the social at ICUcast, at Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-A-N, at Todd Rice underscore ICU, and at Whitney underscore Gannon. Thank you, Todd, for, I guess, being present, though we didn't actually need you today, because thank you, Whitney, for agreeing to come on the show and sharing your expertise. Thank you again to the study team with all their hard work and congratulations on the completion of a difficult design and run trial. Thank you, Mike Gannon, for the intro and outro music. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Let's go save some lives. I'll work on the closing statement a little bit. This podcast is for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked material is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable. We try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.